Well, good morning. All right, if you have your Bibles, get them out. We're going to use them today a little bit. Um, hey, I need to start by clarifying something that I said uh, last week at the beginning of the sermon. So somebody comes to me this week and they said, um, hey, uh, you hurt some people's feelings. They didn't tell me who. <laughs> they said, you hurt some people's feelings because you said you can't believe in the theory of evolution and be a Christian. And, um, and I, I looked at the person, I said, did you hear me say that? And they said, yeah, <laughs> I heard you say that. And I just thought, you know, I just don't think they heard that right. I know what I intended. I looked at my sermon notes, and my sermon notes said, you can't believe in atheistic evolution and be a Christian. That's obvious. And uh, so I went back and actually listened to the sermon, and sure enough, I said, you can't be a Christian and believe in the theory of evolution. I left out the word atheistic. And so I just want to start by saying, I, first of all, I want to clarify that. And uh, secondly, I want to say I am really sorry for misspeaking on that. I, um, hey, you know, a lot of times I say, you got to get what I mean, not what I say. But I am still responsible for the things that I say. And uh, I did say that. And I was thinking about that verse that says, where words are many, transgression is unavoidable. So um, I, wanna, I just want to go out there and say that. Um, that is actually a very important thing to, to distinguish. And so if, I, if you heard that last week, and that hurt you because maybe you believe in a theory of evolution, I just want to tell you I'm sorry that I said that that way. And, um, and the, the point that I was trying to make is that atheistic evolution has as its core belief that there is no God. And I was talking about how we can feel pressure to be accepted, and we can feel pressure to try to make the gospel acceptable to people. And so we accept things that we think will help people believe. But at its core, if you are a Christian and you believe in God, that will never be acceptable to the person in Romans 1 who suppresses and refuses to believe the truth. So let me just say what I think about that. Um, I think that creation is important. I think the way we read Genesis is important. And I've been very open. I think the earth was created in six days because I think God teaches that. And I think the things we believe matter. But I do want to go out there and I want to say this, like, like our, we don't have to believe everything correctly to be a Christian. There's all kinds of things that we can disagree on and be wrong about and still be believers. And how we read Genesis 1 is one of those things that we can disagree on. And so this is a, it's a family discussion and it's not an unimportant discussion. Because there are things that you have to believe to be a Christian. You have to believe in God, and you have to have a biblical understanding of who God is. Um, you have to understand that you are a sinner, and that you need the work of Christ to save you. There are these basic things that you, if you don't believe those things, you are not a Christian. And those things relate to Genesis. Because Genesis is where we understand where sin came from. It's how we understand um, physical and spiritual death is tied to the creation account. These opening chapters of Genesis. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul's talking about the resurrection, which you have to believe to be saved, when he's talking about that, it is tied and connected to the person of Adam who is described 
in, Gen- in the opening chapters of Genesis. And so I'm not saying that our view of Genesis is unimportant, but I also want to say that there's a lot of people a lot smarter than me from a human perspective, theologically more famous than me from a theological perspective, um, that, that hold to theistic evolution, that hold to day age, that do all kinds of different things with Genesis. And, um, and what I would say is I would confidently say, <laughs> I appreciate you, I know you're smarter than me, but you're wrong on that. And I think that as, as believers, we stand before God and we are responsible to read the Bible and to think about it and to trust it and believe it. And, and we don't get to offload our decision-making to some expert somewhere. And uh, by the way, that includes you offloading your thinking to me. I'm supposed to be here to help you, but I'm not the standard of what is right and wrong. That, that is God. So anyway, that was a long way to say. I'm sorry for misspeaking. I hope it'll be the, I hope it'll be the last time I do it. Likely, it will not. If the past is any prediction of the future, I'll misspeak again. So when that happens, um, you know, give me the benefit of the doubt. Pray for me. Hey, if I misspeak or even if I think something that's wrong, that you're convinced I'm wrong, pray for me. Uh, That's what we do. We pray for each other. And these debates about these things can be helpful because as we have different views and as we work those things out and as we prioritize God's word, we can also sharpen each other actually, in the things that we believe, and we can come to believe things that are right. So um, anyway, having said that, um, I want to, you know, the, the concept of evolution, I, I think I personally believe that the theory of evolution is incompatible with, with the Genesis account. And I think that if you read it rightly, I think often people, people um, try to make the opening... Uh, chapters of Genesis fit with evolution. And I think that we do that. I think people do that because number one, they don't actually understand the theory of evolution. I think evolution is one of those things that we learn about and we just trust experts. And often we don't actually understand the significance of some of those things. And many of us have no access to the evidence for evolution. And if we did, we would realize that evolution falls by itself. It doesn't work as a system. And I think often we can believe evolution. We've grown up learning it, but we we don't actually know all the things that the Bible says about creation, and we have not thought through the significance of believing some of the things that evolution says and how that relates to things that the Bible teaches. And so I think when you study evolution and you study the creation account, you will realize they are not compatible. And I think that as believers, when it comes down to it, and we can believe an atheistic evolutionist, or we can believe what God says, I think our choice is clear, what we should believe. So I want to just share something that um, an apologist said. I was was listening to this debate, and it was with uh, William Lane Craig and Christopher Hitchens. William Lane Craig is a Christian apologist. Christopher Hitchens is an evolutionist. And this was a debate that took place at Biola University. And, uh, and I want to represent this correctly. So William Lane Craig says that the best two interpretations for Genesis, the second best interpretation is that it's six 24-hour days. But he does not believe that at all. Um, his view is that Genesis is historical myth. 
And so that is his view, and he holds that very strongly. But I want to quote something that he said in this debate with this evolutionist. Uh, this is what he says. He, said that, um, he says that what evolution imagines is fantastically improbable. So in his debate with an evolutionist, even though he holds to, like, he would, compa- he would you know, make evolution in Genesis 1, he tries to make them fit. I don't think they fit. But what he says about evolution is that it is fantastically improbable. And then he, so, he cites uh, Barrow and Tipler. These are two phys- uh, phys- um, uh, physicists who wrote the anthro- anthro- <laughs> anthropopic... <laughs> cosmological principle. They list 10 steps in human evolution that are so improbable that the earth would have been destroyed by the sun before it could have ever existed. Um, They go on to say that the statistical chances of biological evolution, now they're going to put some numbers here that I can't even comprehend, but these are the numbers. The statistical chances of biological evolution are four to the negative 180th power to the 110th power. Um, And, so it's between that, (laughs) that's the small number, and then the bigger number is four to the negative 360th power to the 100th power. So like these are like numbers I can't even comprehend. He says that's the statistical chances of evolution. And then he says this. So if evolution did occur on this planet, it is literally a miracle and therefore evidence for the existence of God. And so he's in a debate with an evolutionist and he says if evolution really happened, which he does believe it happened, but he says if it happened, it is an absolute miracle and one of the best arguments for the existence of God. And what I would say is, if that is true, that evolution is that improbable, why would we take that theory and, and try to mix it with what God says? And, and I would say, whatever you read in the Bible about um, creation, that seems odd, that seems strange, that seems hard to believe, <laughs> I would just go out there and say, what are the chances of God making everything out of nothing? I mean, if God can do that, uh, what are the statistical chances of God creating the world in six days just like He said He created it? And I think that's the framework that we need to approach these things with. And um, so what I want to just go out there and say is that um, this is important because prioritizing what God says is important. Being a person that is oriented toward looking at Scripture, humbly approaching Scripture and saying, what does it say? And then believing that. That is important. That we live our life understanding that the same God who created the world out of nothing made us. The same God that, that named all the stars. That just created the stars on the fourth day. He's like, created the sun, the moon, all the stuff, and the stars. And then when you understand the amount of stars that there are, and when we think about who that God is, it is so important that we recognize that this God that we serve is a God that we can trust, 
that holds our life in His hands, and that whatever He tells us, we do and we believe. Um, the Bible tells us this. It's, it says, um, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And, and the reason that we need to take Scripture and we need to read it and we need to believe it, we need to allow ourselves to be corrected by what it says, is because when we believe things that aren't true, it hurts us. And um, truth actually is important. And there are people that will say, it does not matter what you believe about these things. And I would say, it does matter what you believe about these things. In fact, uh, Paul, when he's talking to Titus, he says, Paul, a servant of God and the apostle of Christ Jesus, to further the faith of God's elect, and listen to this, and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The things that we believe impact the way that we live. And so when we believe things that are not true, it harms us. And it doesn't just harm us personally. It harms the people that we teach. It harms the people that we shepherd. It harms the people that we influence. And so believing the truth is important. Now, can you believe it? be a Christian and believe things that are wrong? <laughs> yeah, the truth is... We all do, right? None of us have arrived, and we're all working on things and growing. Um, but that's a problem that we are supposed to guard against and that we're supposed to correct. And our orientation always needs to be toward honoring and pleasing the Lord. And I just want to remind us um, that when the Apostle Paul was writing Scripture and when he was preaching to the churches that he preached to, it says this in Acts 17. Now, these Jews were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. And by the way, the Thessalonians were highly complimented as, in their approach to Scripture. Uh, in fact, Thessalonians says that when Paul taught the Thessalonians, they did not believe what he said as the words of men, but they took them as the words of God, what they really are. So the Thessalonians are complimented powerfully in how they receive God's Word, but then it says here that the Thessalonians, um, that, the, 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 they were, that the Jews in, in Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so that's what you're supposed to do every time I preach. You're supposed to open up the Bible and read it and say, is that true? Um, that's what you're supposed to do every time your favorite theologian says something. You're supposed to open up the Bible and go, is that what it says? And, and you know, I'll give you one example of that. So I'm a new Christian, right? And uh, I'm a new Christian, and in high school, as an unbeliever, I used to drink alcohol all the time. I stole alcohol from stores. I would get intoxicated. I got drunk every single day for three months on my way to school. So I spent three months in school intoxicated. So this is one of the things I did as an unbeliever. And when I became a Christian, one of the first things I did is I quit drinking. I looked at that as this evil thing that was harmful to me. Um, I grew up in a church and in a family that said drinking alcohol is wrong. And I just thought about my own personal experience and I thought, yeah, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. And then one of these famous pastors that was so encouraging to me that I used to listen to all the time 
um, he taught that faithful Christians don't drink. And, um, and so he was teaching that. That makes perfect sense. I went away to Bible college, and I heard people teaching on this. And, and you'd hear questions where people would say, well, okay, wait a second. When you read the Bible, people are drinking wine. I mean, Jesus made wine at a wedding, and then he gave it to people to drink. So how could drinking be wrong? And the response was, yeah, I have an answer for that. And the answer was, wine in the New Testament wasn't really wine, it was grape juice. That, that was one of the answers. Another answer was that they took wine and they mixed it with the water because the water was bad. And so the wine that they drank was so diluted that it had no alcohol in it. And one of the evidences that somebody uh, explained to me to prove this was in Acts chapter 2 when the apostles are preaching, um, somebody says, hey, these guys are drunk. And, and one of the responses was to say, well, it was only 9 o'clock in the morning. And so that was Peter's response is, no, uh, the, these guys aren't drunk. It's only 9 in the morning. And so the response was they'd only been up for from 6 o'clock, and the wine in that day was so weak that if you just pounded wine as much as you could from, not, from 6 in the morning until 9, like drinking solid for three hours, was, you couldn't get drunk. So this is proof. It's 9 in the morning. They weren't drunk. If you wanted to get drunk with New Testament wine, you would have to drink until 2, 3, 4 in the afternoon. Like that's how weak the wine was. And I just want to go out there and say, if you understand how a person's body works, if you can drink solid for three hours and not get intoxicated, you could not get drunk if you drank till three because your body would process out the alcohol faster than you could put it in. So this is what I'm learning, right? From people that are respected, this person writes commentaries. They are a well-published author. And so I'm reading that, and, um, and, and, th and then I get a job as a junior high pastor, and I start teaching that to students. But one of the things that happened is that while I'm in Bible college, I'm reading the Bible from beginning to end. And that's one of the reasons that reading the Bible is so important, because you can go explain away a verse here, and you can explain away a verse there, and you can explain away a verse over here. But I'll tell you what you can't do. You cannot humbly read Scripture from the beginning to the end and then have to explain away everything. When you find yourself explaining away everything that you read, you have to just sit and think to yourself, I think maybe this theological position I have is wrong. And I came to the point that I'm like, okay, well, when you're reading the Bible... Lot, <laughs> a story in Genesis, this guy gets so drunk that people sleep with him twice and he's so out of it he doesn't know when they come in and when they go out. And then you read Proverbs about all the warnings of getting drunk and how it just makes your head spin and you're like on a mast. And so just any average third grade kid reading through the Bible is going to read that and go, this whole stuff about that the wine in the Bible wasn't really wine is not true because it doesn't fit with all the things that the Bible says. You can't explain them all away. And so I, came to the, I had to come to the conclusion like, do I care more what God says or what all my friends and what my hero theologians think? 
And so I changed my view on that because that's not supported by Scripture. I mean, let's think about John 2, right, where Jesus is making wine. What do they say to him? Um, you save the best wine till last. Nobody does that. People drink the good wine first. And then after people have drunk freely, they drink the bad wine. <laughs> Why? Because you drink the good wine, it influences your ability to taste, and then you serve the bad wine. So you just can't read the Bible and come away from the fact that, that wine in the Bible is not wine. And what I want to say about creation, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk so much about wine. <laughs> but what I want to say about creation is you cannot read the Bible from the beginning to the end. You cannot understand the theory of evolution and then reinterpret Genesis because it's not just Genesis. It is all over the Bible. And we're going to look at a little bit of that today. And so when we do this, we need to be faithful in our approach to Scripture. And so I want to do a couple things. Um, one of the things that happens is I think you have to go away to seminary to come up with the idea that Genesis is compatible with evolution. You have to follow some famous scholar. I've, I've read paragraphs by people who hold to evolution. They, they, they Hebrew scholars that will conflate evolution and, and the Genesis account. And they will say, nobody reads Genesis and comes up with evolution. Like when you read it, it's portrayed as a historical account. But then they'll say, but as we've studied science, we have learned, and we have to bring that to our understanding. And I would say that is the wrong way to approach Scripture. And so we need to make sure that we don't do that. So I want to talk about uh, one of the arguments, by the way, that people use is they'll say things like, if you could read this in Hebrew, then you would know. What happens when people do that? Now, they're the expert that you have to listen to because... You don't know Hebrew, and they do, right? And what I want to tell you, I want to try to bring some of those forward to you, but I just want you to know that when you read Genesis in English, you can see everything that you need to see. And reading it in Hebrew doesn't make it harder. Um, reading it in Hebrew would make more clear that it is exactly the way it portrays itself as you read your Bible. So um, some wrong ways to uh, approach Genesis. Let's look at the first one. Um, the, the first wrong way is to just believe that you get to determine truth and that you just make up whatever you want. That is the wrong way to think about the Bible and to approach the Bible. Truth is something that is outside of us that we discover that God communicates. Here's what we need to know. God himself is true. God knows truth. God never makes mistakes. Every human is very fallible. God never makes mistakes. And everything that God says is true. Um, uh, 1 John 5.20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given to us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. That's talking about God. And we are in Him who is true. And in His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and the eternal life. We all know John 14.6 Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. The Holy Spirit is truth. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes. So we start by just realizing that God is true. God knows truth. God never makes mistakes. And we always prioritize what God says. Now, um, this is a math equation. And um, 
It's uh, x to the third power plus y to the third power plus z to the third power equals 3. And then you've got to come up with an equation that will make that work out. So we have numbers that are too big for me to actually, I, I wouldn't even know how to say those numbers. But there's a big number to the third power plus a negative number to the third power plus another negative number to the third power, and that equals 3. <laughs> yes. Okay, so you've got to be pretty smart. I can't even comprehend this. Now, you remember the story I told you about John when he was in second grade learning math? And um, the teacher was taught, taught him addition. He was doing really good. Uh, six plus two is eight. And then she started teaching subtraction. And so she put six minus two is four. And John looks at it and goes, that's wrong. <laughs> and uh, she like stopped and looked at the board and thought, did I make a mistake? He so confidently asserted that she was wrong. John did, didn't actually comprehend the minus sign. When it comes to life, the most intelligent scientist, the most brilliant individual on earth is like a second grader that can't get basic math right. God is the incredible genius that knows everything. So when, when a brilliant scientist studies something in the world and says, well, this would contradict with what the Bible says. Like, we're not shocked that there's things that people don't understand or that don't make sense, but we trust God. As we study things in the world, we understand that things in the universe are so incredible, so incomprehensible, um, that it's like we're going to make confident statements about a universe that's 13 billion light years is to the end of it. And we're still trying to figure out how many moons are on Jupiter. I mean, on Jupiter, they just discovered in 2011 another moon. And Jupiter is light minutes from us. When we're still figuring out those kind of basic things, would we trust a fallible, ignorant human being and say, I'm going to correct God with what you think? We wouldn't do that. So we understand that God is truth. We understand that God's Word is true. Um, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. Proverbs 35, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth. God's word is true in the details and it's true in the overall message. And so um, thinking that you determine truth or anybody else determines truth is wrong. The second thing I want to say is atheistic evolution that all of this world and all of creation exists apart from God. <laughs> atheistic evolution is wrong. I'm not even going to spend a lot of time talking about that. We're all there, right? Because mo most, if not all of us, are Christians. Okay, so now I want to talk about another incorrect approach. Um, there are those who approach Genesis and they say it's figurative. And there's two big ways that people do that. There's actually a lot of ways people do that, but there's two big ways that people say Genesis is, wrong, is, is figurative. It's true, but it's true figuratively. And then they take that figurativeness and they have to kind of explain away the things that are said. And one of the big ways is to say that Genesis is poetry. And it's not intended for us to, to understand. And what I want you to know is if you could read it in Hebrew you would know Genesis is not poetry. Um, it's, um, 
So if we were to, uh, one, of the, one of the things people do, it's simple things. And by the way, you could understand this by reading poems in, in the Bible and by reading Genesis. And when you read it in English, it is less obvious than it is if you read it in Hebrew. Uh, and so I just want to say this. People will say that on day one, two, and three, God created uh, the universe and light, then the sea and the sky, then plants and animals. And then on day four, he made the sun, moon, and stars that give light, fish and birds that fill the sea and the sky, animals and humans that fill the earth and that eat the plants. And they say, well, that's poetic, and so it can't be true. And I would just say to you, if you said... Yeah, I came home yesterday and I painted my living room and then I painted the bedrooms and then I painted the outside of the house. And then when I was done, I went and furnished my living room and I furnished my bedrooms and then I furnished the outside of the house. Would you go, oh, this is figurative. I guess there's not really a house and, and because look, look how organized that was. Like nobody would look at that and go, oh, that's poetic. We would hear that and just think, yeah, it's an organized person. And, and when we look at this creation, that is not poetic. Um, um, the Genesis account does not have the marks of Hebrew poetry. Here's Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And you see how that's all parallel? Um, you have a walks, stands, and sits. You have counsel, way, and seat. You have wicked sinners and scoffers. That is a progression. Um, walking is, is uh, walking along with somebody. Standing is like getting more in there. Sitting in the seat, that's getting even deeper. Um, uh, the counsel, the way, the seat. And then you have the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. That is also a progression. So when you look at Hebrew poetry, there's this parallelism that is happening in Hebrew poetry. That's not happening in Genesis. You could look through all these things. I would also just say this. Do you want to read a poem about creation? Read Job um, 37-39. through 39. That's God talking about creation in poetry. And I will just say, if you read that, and then you read Genesis, you will say, this is not poetry. This is not poetry about creation. This is a historical account of creation. There's another grammatical feature, and I apologize for saying this word, but it's the toll verb form. So you don't need to remember that or know that. But one of the first things that you learn when you're in Hebrew and you start translating is you start learning there is this, there's this verb form that switches where it's normally translated future, but then you translate it past if it's in a certain... Anyway, I'm not going to get into the details of that, but it's one of the very first things you learn, and it's one of the things that you translate as you're going through um, Hebrew narratives. It's this feature that stands out, and guess what? It's all over Genesis 1. And that's something that you can't see, but here's a little graph. I just did a search in my Bible program, and I guess these numbers are pretty small, but... And the, and the words, but the first tall one, that's the books of history. That's how this verb form shows up in the books of history. The, set, the middle one is the books of prophecy. That's how it shows up in the books of prophecy. And that small one is how this is used in poetry. So here's another one. Uh, this is all the books of the Bible. Um, all the books of the Old Testament as this verb form appears. Genesis is the, fifth, is the sixth white line there. 
All the books of poetry are the small lines on the bottom. And here's a, here's a blow-up of that. The, 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 the top six and the last six. All the books of poetry are in the last six. Uh, we throw in, Lament, we throw in um, Lamentations as, as one of the prophets is also in that small uh, group. Genesis is six. Like, it is super high in the way that this is used. If you look at the chapters of Genesis... This is how that verb form shows up in Genesis. It's all over Genesis. And if you look at the first 11 uh, chapters of Genesis, they're all high except chapter 10. So people that want to say, oh, uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis aren't history. No, they are history. They're portrayed as history, not poetry. Uh, if you look at the use of the wag toll in the book of Job, um, what do you know about the book of Job? The first two chapters are a historical narrative. Where do you see all the toll uses in poetry? It's in the historical section. And then the very last chapter, which is a historical section, it's completely missing from, by the way, the, the chapters on, God crea on creation poetry. It's not there. It's not in the poetry sections of Job. If we look at the book of Psalms, um, it's not used, except it's interesting. It shows up in three psalms. And so then I thought to myself, well, I should go look at these three psalms. What are these three psalms of? And when I went and looked those up, the three psalms that have a higher use are psalms that um, are about the exodus and the wandering in the wilderness. They are another one. That's Psalm 106. It's a psalm about the Exodus. It's a historical account. Um, the Exodus in Psalm 77. In Psalm 78, again, the Exodus and the wandering in Egypt. So when God does use this in poetry, it's about something that was historically happened, a historical narrative. So the idea that this is poetry and that it's not history is not something that's supported biblically. So it's, I just want you to know, it's not poetry. But I want to say this, though. Even if it's poetry, you have to ask yourself, what's it communicating? And, and even if it's poetry, it's communicating the things that it is saying when you read it. Um, this, the next one is that it's figurative mytho-history. And this is interesting because this is to look at it and say, no, it is definitely portrayed as history. But then you got a dilemma, because if it's definitely portrayed as history, but you got to separate yourself from what it's saying, then we throw this idea of myth. It's a true myth. It's an inspired myth, but it's a myth. It's not something that really happened. It's just something that we're supposed to learn from. I'm kind of like the the uh, parables of Jesus. That could be an example of Jesus is walking and he tells a parable. And it's not, like, it's not like Jesus was actually describing a farmer who was sowing. He's telling a, making an analogy where he describes a farmer who's sowing and some seed falls on the road and some on the rocky soil, some in the plant, some with the, the thorny soil, and then on the good soil. <laughs> what I would say is, first of all, it's very possible that Jesus was looking at a farmer sowing seeds and then made an analogy. But the other thing I would say is that when you think about the analogies that are made in a parable, they're all true, right? If you throw seeds on the hard road, don't birds come and eat it? 
And if you throw uh, seeds on rocky soil, the energy can't go into the roots, so they spring up really big on top. Like that really happens. And then if you throw uh, plants, they spring up, then the weeds actually come and choke them out. That really happens. And then if you put seeds in good soil, then they grow and they bear fruit, and it really happens. But this is the other thing. The parables that Jesus tells are portrayed as parables. And so when we read the New Testament, we, we see that. By the way, there's one parable, uh, there's one account that Jesus gives that's a debated parable. Do you know which one that is? It's in Luke 16, where Jesus tells a story about a rich man and a poor man, and the poor man dies. His name is Lazarus, and he goes to Abraham's bosom. It's a description of hell. And some people say, no, that's a parable, and other people argue against it and say it's not a parable. Do you know why they say it's not a parable? Because it uses a name. In no parables are names used. And so in this story, a person's name is used. And guess what? In Genesis 1-11, through there are lots of names used. And there's another example of a, of a story that's told in the Old Testament that has this wayictal verb form in it, and it's not a real story, it's a hypothetical story. You want to know which story that is? Remember when Nathan goes to David, and he says to David, hey David, there's this guy who has a sheep, and uh, it's his little sheep, everybody in the family loves his sheep, and then this rich guy who got lots of sheep, he, has, he had a friend come over to hang out, and uh, that friend, uh, he went and took the poor man's sheep, killed it, slaughtered it, and ate it. And David hears this story, and how does David react? He gets mad. He's like, that guy deserves to die. And then he quotes very specifically the law on what the penalties need to be. That is such a deep story that's good for us to think about. So what I want to tell you is David's reaction to that is, this is a story that really happened. So that's how he understands it. And you want to know what does not happen? The prophet doesn't walk away from that situation letting David think that that really happened. He immediately stops and said, David, this is you. You did this. And when we think about honesty and the fact that everything that God tells us is true, if it's that hard to tell the difference between what's true and what's not true, um, how do we go through Scripture and kind of figure out what's true and what's not true? Like I would say if my kids came home and said, Dad, I want to tell you, I asked them a question and they answered me with mytho-history. <laughs> I would have a label for that. And so one of the things I want to say is I don't believe that mytho-history is actually a real category. The other thing I want to tell you is that if you really thought about that story, David, uh, Nathan doesn't give any names when he's describing this story. And the other thing that happens is he's talking about a sheep. We all know Bathsheba, right? Do you know, he, he says the sheep was like a daughter to him. Do you know how you say she, uh, daughter in Hebrew? Bath. So throughout this story that he's telling, Bathsheba, but he keeps saying this was a bath. You have the word bath repeated over and over through this. So I would just say that those are like, if you want to make an argument for mytho history, that's the best you got. 
And I would say it's very weak. And I would say the other thing that's a huge problem with looking at Genesis, the Genesis account as mytho-history, is that none of the Bible writers refer to Genesis, the story in Genesis, as anything other than real history. And significant theology is tied to the history of Genesis. I'll give you a few examples. Um, The genealogies. When you're reading the genealogies of Jesus, it starts with Adam and it goes to Jesus. And you want to know that there's no difference between the genealogies that have all the people listed in Genesis. It's not like at a certain point it stops. It's just thrown in there with everything. Um, and so, like, that's a portrayal that it's real. When, 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 the, when Genesis is referred to, the stories in Genesis 1-11 through 11 are cited in lists with other stories that are supposed to encourage us. We're supposed to look at those things and say, wow, this is how God works. That is so encouraging to me. And I think if, if you go, if you change these concepts to mytho-history, they genuinely lose their power. Um, when you think about the spiritual significance of the resurrection, you know, the Apostle Paul is not looking at the resurrection and going, hey, this is a spiritual idea that God wants you to, wants you to understand. And so, if you just kind of understand the spiritual method, message of it, whether or not it actually happened doesn't matter. Here's the issue with that. The resurrection is not in the same category as your view of creation, Right? So let's just go out there and say those are different categories. You have to be, believe in the resurrection to be a Christian. You could be wrong about your interpretation of Genesis and still be a Christian. There are faithful Christians who disagree with that. But I would just say this, in Paul's argument, Paul says if, it's not his, if, if it didn't happen historically, it's theologically empty. Um, nowhere in the Bible is theology built on a myth. It's always tied to history. Jesus Himself is connected and tied to Adam. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4 says, if Christ has not been raised, this is the other thing too, um, Paul's going to actually talk about the honesty of that presentation. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. And here's, here's what he says in verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. That He raised... Christ, whom he did not raise, if the dead aren't raised. So Paul thinks it's kind of significant if he says something happened that didn't really happen. And so if we're if if Moses is saying, describing the creation of the world, and it didn't really happen, that's an honesty problem. If if you look at the way that the resurrection is handled, that's the way we would think about Genesis. You know, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living spirit, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. That is talking about Adam being created out of dirt, a man of dust. That is a reference to the creation account. And it's connected to the person of Jesus. Uh, when you think about sin and death, you cannot separate um, death, physical death, or spiritual death from the fall of mankind. And if you believe in theistic evolution, you have to separate those things. 
because um, there was lots of death before sin. Um, there was lots of death and mutations and growth and all these and transitions, and all this stuff is happening actually for billions of years before a human being ever appears. And so, how could Adam, how could there be, so there has to be death before sin. Now, by the way, there are people who hold the day-age views because they're looking around at the world and they're seeing age and like, we got to try to reconcile this. And one guy I was reading was looking at the days of creation and just saying, no, the things I'm committed to are what Genesis teaches. And that is that the things that were created on the first day are first. And people actually do this with evolution where they'll say, well, first the world was, was developed that fits with Genesis. And then um, after the world, then there were the, the, the fish and the birds. Well, that fits with evolution because that's what happened next. And then there were animals. That fits with evolution because that's what happened next. And then there were people. And so people will take that. They'll try to read it into the creation account. So this guy puts these. He's going, no, I'm, I hold to the order of creation in Genesis. Um, and he, and, but I'm just like, okay, so it's hard for you to believe that God created the world in six days. But day one was a billion years. So we spent a billion years with light and no sun. And then we, you know, it's not until the fourth billion years that stars came around. It's like, how does this solve your problems? But that, that was one of this, this guy's view. I've seen other people that will go, no. As you read Genesis very clearly, one animal does not turn into another animal. Everything reproduces after its kind. And so then you take the theory of evolution and you just say, well, God specially created at certain points of time. So the world evolved, but it evolved with God specially creating along the way. And, and I'm just going to tell you that when you take the things that the Bible says that have to be true, and then you apply those to the theory of evolution, it destroys the theory of evolution. Like, it's not the theory of evolution anymore if God is specially creating along the way. And you have all these huge problems like death before sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For indeed, was in the world before the law was given, um, uh, but sin is not counted where there's no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. And that's one passage, but sin comes, death comes from sin. All of creation fell. It's not just human beings that die because of sin. All of creation was marred by sin. And we'll see that as we look at the, uh, the creation account. When you look at how Jesus refers to the creation account, he, occur, he refers to it as though it really happened. There's theology in the New Testament based on creation and the things that happen in Genesis chapter 3. Um, it says this in Matthew 9, 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? God created Adam, male and female, from the beginning. If you take the theory of evolution, mankind does not appear at the beginning. Like our world and universe is like four and a half billion years old. 
and man separated out from the animal that supposedly uh, chimpanzees developed from and humans uh, developed from about 50 million years ago, I think, is the date. So you got four and a half billion years, and it's not till 50 million years ago that humans appeared. And Jesus says, from the beginning, God created them male and female. What does that sound like? It sounds like what Genesis says. He says it again in Mark 6. And then when you think about Jesus' reference to the worldwide flood, Jesus says this, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage in the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, so we're, now we're talking about the flood and now we're talking about Lot, so the days of Lot, that's a myth too? Or, or is that real? And so as Jesus is referring to these things, He refers to all these things as though they really happened. Likewise, just as it was the day of, the, of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Okay, let's reread this. Um, just as in the days of the mythical story that didn't really happen that is written in Genesis, so it will be, be in the days of man. Like when you go through and you're going to read and just say this is a mythical story. As you do that in Second Peter where it talks about the promises of God's coming, they will say where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything's continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And then it says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. What does that sound like? Sounds like creation. And then it goes on and it says, that, and by means of these, so God separates the waters from above from the waters below, and by means of these, the waters above, God floods the entire earth. That's the account, right? And drowns everybody. Well, what does it say? And by means of this water the, uh, that existed long ago, it was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God, and that by means of these, the world then existed, was deluged with water and perished. And then it goes on in verse 7, and it says, but by the same Word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then it goes on and it talks about how if God can save Noah, He can save you. Well, hey guys, you should have confidence about the difficulty and the struggle that you're facing because God wrote a mythical story about saving some people. It didn't really happen, but it was a mythical story. And if you think about this mythical story, um, that's communicating that God can help you. Is that different than saying the entire world was evil and God saved Noah, a righteous man, and He punished evil people? And in your life, these little tiny struggles that you have with evil, these little tiny struggles with, can I be righteous and please and serve the Lord? But what God did in the days of Noah was so unbelievable and powerful. Your problem is so tiny in perspective of that. Does it matter to go, well, actually, that's not true. None of that really happened. It's just kind of an illustrative story. And I would say no. It does matter. And I would say it matters because it's more powerful, but I would say even more than that, it matters because it's portrayed as really happening. 
And everybody in the New Testament that looks back on it sees it as though it really happened. And so, um, I think that when we approach Genesis, I think it's super important that we prioritize God's Word, that we think about the overall message of the Bible. And I think as we study Scripture, you can explain away this and you could explain away that, but that is one of the reasons we start reading the Bible in the beginning and we read it through the end. And I'll just tell you, if in your theology... You have to explain away something in Genesis 1. You've got to explain it away in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And you've got to explain it away in Genesis 6 and 7. And then you've got to explain it away in these other places. And then you've got to explain it away in the prophets. And then you've got to explain it away. Every time Jesus is preaching, you've got to explain that away. And then you've got to explain something else away. And, and then you've got to explain away the direct teaching of Scripture. And you have to explain away all the stories that the Bible's communicating can I just suggest to you that you should change whatever you believe that's making you explain things away? And you may have a pet doctrine, and your pet doctrine and your personal preference might be that drinking alcohol should be sin. But when you read the whole Bible, and you read it from the beginning to the end, and you go, yeah, actually that's not true because I've got to explain away too much. My suggestion is that we as a believers, as we approach Scripture, that we don't explain it away. Um, God has revealed through creation His nature, His character, His power, His prominence is explained through creation. And you want to know something? God loves you. And God is so powerful. He's so wise. He's so good. He's so loving. You can trust Him and you can see that. And you want to know something? When Job's life falls apart and Job questions God, do you know where God goes? He goes to creation. Like that's three, three, cha like three chapters of creation. And this is the crazy thing. God talks about how amazing He is in creation. You know what Job says? He says, God, I'm really sorry that I questioned you. And then you know what God says? Yeah, I'm not done. And then he goes on more about creation. Um, and, and Job is repenting. And I just want you to know that whatever you're struggling with, whatever doesn't make sense to you, um, what God teaches about himself through creation is powerful. And when Job is shaken to the core, that brings him comfort. You know, when God is talking about what matters to him and man, he makes a reference to creation, and then he makes a statement that I think is important for you and I to think about this. This is what God says in Isaiah 66.2. He says, All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be. God create, he appeals to creation. And then he says something that is something each of us ought to really take to heart. And that is this. He says, But to this one... But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And that's what God's looking for as a humble person who's not impressed with their own intelligence, who's not impressed with their own theology, who's not impressed by whatever their fame is. They're just a person that they open up God's word and they read it and they just say, man, I tremble at your word. God, I'm going to humble myself before you. I'm going to read your word. I'm not going to come up with a way I can explain it away. 
I'm actually just going to try to figure out, hey, God, what are you communicating to me? And whatever that is, I'm going to change. If I don't believe it, I'm going to change what I believe. If my hero says something different, I'm going to depart from my hero. Um, because, God, you're the one that I love and that I'm following. And that's how God wants us to approach his word. It's how we should think about creation. Now, having said all that, you're getting all this from me reading the Bible and telling you what I think. But just like the Bereans, it's your job to read the Bible and before God, figure out what you think. Let me pray. God, thank you for giving us your word. I thank you for the Holy Spirit that leads us to truth. Lord, every single one of us is fallible, and every time we notice a theological weakness in another person, we realize we have them too, just in ways we don't realize. God, I pray that you would fill us with the humility that's willing to just read and believe and trust your word. And God, I thank you that you are not dependent on our perfection, our intelligence, or us getting everything right. God, thank you that you are gracious and forgiving. Pray that you would help us as a church family to be gracious and forgiving to one another when we say dumb things or hurt each other's feelings or um, just step out of line. And God, help us to be a church family that just loves each other and loves you in your name. Amen.